Okay, so today we're going to be looking at um, Luke 16, 14 through 18. And um, I, I've entitled this uh, sermon, Three Lessons Kingdom People Embrace About Friendship. And that may be, seem a little strange because Luke 16 is really a lot about money and wealth. And we've been talking about money and wealth as Pastor Brian's been preaching through this chapter. And so um, how does friendship play in? Hopefully I'll be able to help everybody get there. Um, and you won't think I'm just uh, taking my own path here. But uh, I thought before I did that, the first thing to do would be to kind of set Luke 16, 14 in its context in the chapter. Um, what we have here really is Luke 16, 14 sits in the middle of chapter 16 overall. In the first portion of the chapter, really Luke 16, 1 through 13, Jesus is primarily addressing his disciples. Now, when we say that, it's not like other people can't be listening in. Uh, they're not in a closed room or a private session where nobody else can hear what Jesus is saying. He's instructing his disciples in front of others, but his primary addressee is the disciples. In the second half, really, of the chapter, uh, beginning with verse 14, um, but particularly Jesus starts talking in verse uh, 15 and all the way through the, the next parable that we'll address next week, the story of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. Jesus is really talking about talking more directly to the Pharisees. Like I said, obviously his disciples are still there. So other people are hearing this. It's not exclusive teaching for the Pharisees. But in, in verse 15, Jesus begins to uh, really address the Pharisees in a more pointed fashion. Luke 16, 14 is sort of a pivot point then in the chapter. And what's interesting about that is it sort of gives us a little bit of background information to understand exactly who the Pharisees are and what they're going to be doing. Um, this is a short series of verses, verses 14 through 18. And so as we go through the sermon, we'll kind of repeat some of the verses a little bit and draw different ideas out of them as we go. But in verse 16, 14, here's what it says. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And that description of lovers of money is going to become important as we think about uh, what it means for kingdom people to understand friendship. So, three lessons. Whoops. There we go. My mouse is out of control. Um, when I think about three lessons about kingdom people embrace about friendship, the first thing that comes to mind is we, when we don't commit to seeing the world around us in terms of the kingdom of God, we're going to be prone to interact with the world in ways that are less than faithful. And so really what this section, uh, this very short section is about is Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples what it means to interact in the world in relation to wealth and relationships. And the Pharisees now come along and they say, that's a bunch of bunk, Jesus. We don't believe anything you're saying. We don't agree with what you're saying. We think you're actually a little bit crazy and off, and they're ridiculing him. And what we find then is this contrast between what Jesus understands the kingdom to be and the Pharisees understand the world, how the world works. And there's a dissonance because the Pharisees really aren't seeing it from the perspective of the kingdom of God. And so our job then as believers is to understand what it means to be part of the kingdom and to see the world as part of that kingdom. So what are kingdom people? What do I mean by that? Um, the best way I can describe it, it's not just 
Uh, obviously, everybody who knows Christ and who is saved is a kingdom person, but it, it probably needs a little bit more than that for, to get at what I'm, I'm trying to explain. And so when I think about what are kingdom people, I'll use the analogy of uh, gym etiquette. So I've been working out, um, as, a, as Elizabeth said, I have a BS in kinesiology, which is a fancy word for, uh, you know, going to school to work out a lot. Uh, I've been uh, going to the gym since I was 14 years old. And um, there is a particular cadence that you use when you go into a gym. There are certain rules that you follow, these sort of implicit and or explicit rules that make it seem like you belong there. And people understand, oh, this person actually understands how to sort of navigate the gym. You know, you're not uh, going up to guys and, you know, putting your arms around them and talking to them for, you know, 20 minutes. That's sort of, that's anathema in the gym. That's not something you do. Um, you know, you don't leave your weights on the bar. You have to re-rack your, your weights. That's a, that's a, big, uh, it's a big faux pas if you leave your weights uh, racked up in the gym. Uh, wiping down your machines, not optional. Uh, even in times when it's not COVID, if you leave big sweat marks, you got to wipe those off. And so there are just these little things that sort of demonstrate that you belong there, that you understand what it means to be a part of that gym community. And uh, I have some pictures of folks who we might identify as non-gym folks uh, that I'll show you. So this is not the appropriate way to use most of these machines in the gym. Uh, if you ever go to the gym, uh, don't put your head under things like that. That's not right. Um, you know, don't, don't flip upside down. It's very seldom in the gym that you actually need to flip upside down. Um, and certainly you shouldn't load up weight machines and then stand on your head. Uh, reading a book is okay if you're in the lobby, but uh, normally you wouldn't, you know, sit on a machine and read a book at the gym. And so there, there are things that these folks in these pictures are doing that would identify them as not quite understanding what it means to be a gym person. You know, and it's identifiable. It's easy to see. You'd walk in, you'd see it, and you'd go, there's probably something wrong with the guy who is in the red shirt, standing on his head, and then going to try to push a bunch of weight up. Um, but there he is. And so our behaviors really can't be separated from this sort of deeper commitment and identity and understanding of the world around us. Um, when we understand our context rightly and how we fit within it, our behaviors will sort of flow out into that. And so we act um, and how we act is really an expression of who we are and how we understand the world around us. Just in the terms of the kingdom of God, we're just going to be prone to act in ways that are less than faithful, that aren't going to really demonstrate to people that, hey, you know, I am a, I am a servant of Christ. I understand what it means to be a part of God's order and God's realm. And this is the way I act toward others because I understand that. And so um, this analogy of gym people, um, you know, I don't do any of these things when I go to the gym usually, uh, but these folks are. And it's just a good picture, I think, that um, when we don't really fully get what it means to live for Christ in the world, we do odd things. And um, we do things that show that we really don't understand what it is to be in the kingdom. And so the Pharisees in this, in this passage are really going to demonstrate that they don't understand what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. So that's kingdom of God, but why friendship? Why, is, why would I talk about friendship in this passage? Friendship doesn't really seem to be in view. Uh, there's a few different reasons. Uh, in, Roman, in the Roman world, economic sharing 
uh, sharing wealth and giving money to others was a demonstration of the sort of relationship that you had with them. And so if we think, you know, the best example of this, uh, even coming out of Luke's gospel, is the Good Samaritan. Uh, the rich man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so who was the, good, who was the neighbor in that story? It was the Samaritan. It was the person who, regardless of whether he thought he was going to be paid back or not, really went to, the, um, to great lengths to care for this person who he found on the side of the road. And the Samaritan then becomes the neighbor to this person. And that is very common in the Roman world. And it often sharing wealth was a, a sign that you were family. Uh, at the very least, it meant that you were friends and not strangers. And so wealth was uh, often used to demonstrate sort of these closer knit relationships that we're on the same team. You're in my group. And so I have no problem sharing money with you. That's not an issue at all. Um, it often showed that uh, it was often used then to gain status and those kind of things. But um, Jesus is going to redefine this a little bit um, in terms of friendship. The other thing I would say is when we look at the um, lovers of money uh, in verse 14, that does connect back up to some things in, uh, in Luke 16 that we'll look at a little bit here. We, we looked a couple of weeks ago at um, when Jesus tells us to use our unrighteous wealth to make friends. That word friends and this lovers of money sound very similar. And so there's probably a wordplay in the text that is trying to connect these lovers of money that the Pharisees are, the Pharisees are lovers of money or they're friends of money. Um, and Jesus is telling us, no, don't, don't think of friends like that. Use the wealth to make friends so that when you get into heaven, when you go and it, you know, into this eternal life and you're in the kingdom, um, that these friends will save a place for you. And that really comes, that really is illustrated well in the, in the next section of the uh, passage, which Lazarus and the, and the rich man. Um, let's move on here. So what's the first lesson that kingdom people need to embrace about friendship? And the first lesson is there are no strangers for kingdom people. Uh, it's just everybody's our friend. Everybody has the potential to be our friend. Uh, really, the only people who are excluded from the kingdom are those who are um, lovers of money. They're, uh, they're folks who refuse to um, follow Christ. They're people who refuse to conform to the order of, of heaven. Uh, the order of the kingdom of God. And so, but for us, there really are no strangers. And where we really begin to see this is um, in verse 16.9. And so I want to read 16.9 again. And um, Jesus has just told a parable of the um, unjust steward. And he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And so what we have there is Jesus sort of saying, okay, here's how we should view wealth. We should view wealth as a means for us to attract people into the kingdom of God, to make these friends on earth that we wouldn't make otherwise. Um, we addressed that a couple sermons ago, and so I won't go too deep into it, but I do want to make this connection that the overall passage is really flowing and what Jesus is doing in this section is he's kind of going back over the points with the Pharisees and saying, you guys ridiculed my teaching. 
but it's really you who are wrong. And so the way you make friends, you use this unrighteous wealth to make friends. Um, and those we support financially, those we join with in that economic sharing, those are the ones that we are identifying as our friends. Um, conversely, those who we don't share with, we're identifying as those who are not our friends. And in the context of this passage, you know, the Pharisees were pretty well known for excluding certain groups from uh, their circles, you know, the, the sinners and the tax collectors. And this was a big knock that they had against Jesus, that he would associate with such people. And um, here, what Jesus is saying is they're not excluded. These are people that can enter the kingdom of God, and um, we should treat them as such. We also see something in 1613 that's important. Uh, we just went over this one last week, but um, Jesus tells his disciples, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so now in Luke's comment in verse 16, what we see is sort of this highlight that the Pharisees are lovers of money, which means that they can't serve God. They're so committed to this system where the, the money gives them status and wealth and um, leverage over other people, gives them the power to decide who's in and who's out, that they're not going to serve God. And so, you know, flowing from verse 16, 13, into verse 16, 14, um, you've got this already sort of a, a comment on the Pharisees that makes you realize that these are guys who just don't get it. They're not kingdom people. So uh, as we've, we've kind of seen this all in previous weeks, but um, Luke has a pretty good emphasis on this. And he's not teaching us to give all our money away, right? Um, there are plenty of examples in Luke and throughout Luke's gospel and Acts, um, where we see people use money to befriend folks for the kingdom. Um, early believers shared all things in common. We see that in the book of Acts. Um, it's not really a comment on like socialism or communism or some other sort of political system. It's a more radical political statement. Um, you know, the believers are all coming together. They're forging friendships. Um, they're treating each other like family. And that is really what's in mind in those, in those sections. And so what we, what we find is that in Luke, this, this sharing of wealth is a sign that we're all together. Um, we also have examples of people who come to faith and give their money away, right? Uh, wealthy tax collectors who are sort of giving portions of their money uh, back to the people. We see Cornelius in Acts, who is identified as a God-fearer. Um, and he was a guy who gave alms to the poor or um, you know, gave um, almost to charity is sort of the idea there. And none of these people really gave away all their wealth, um, but they determined to connect themselves through their wealth to those who were on the margins of society. They, they got it, in other words. They were kingdom people. They understood that these folks who are sort of usually the outcasts, that using their wealth to draw these people in and befriend them was the right thing to do. It's what they were, that wealth was intended for. And so we have, uh, we have those kind of folks. Then we have sort of a negative example that I would point to um, in Ananias and Sapphira. Um, if you're familiar with the books of Acts, you'll kind of remember this story. Ananias and Sapphira uh, promised to give a certain amount of money to the church, and then they held back a portion. And uh, they both end up dying 
um, the Lord sort of smites them and they both die. But the issue there wasn't that they didn't give all the money. It was that they said they were going to give all the money and then didn't. They wanted to benefit from the impression that they were being generous and befriending the church while still benefiting themselves. And um, so what we find is that they're not using their money appropriately uh, in that setting. So let me go to this next phrase. I just want to look through this, this portion of the passage. And um, I use this red box just to delineate the, the passages we'll be looking at. But um, when we come to Luke, the Pharisees in Luke 16, you know, they've heard Jesus's teaching. They're ridiculing him because of them. Um, it's, they're saying it's not the way the world works. They're money lovers. And the implication of that is that the Pharisees are committed to a world that runs on an economy different than the kingdom. Uh, wealth becomes a mechanism to gain friends in the present, to operate in uh, to re retain power for the good of the Jewish community, or at least the good as the Pharisees define it. And I think the really difficult part is that they're willing to trade on their, um, their status as religious leaders um, to gain status for themselves. In other words, they're not using money for anybody else's good but their own. Um, the Pharisees probably weren't a wealthy group necessarily. And so what we're really looking at isn't that they were growing rich necessarily, but they were maintaining a certain status within the community that allowed them to do whatever they felt like doing. They could define things, and that's what they really seemed to want. Um, this approach uh, led them into idolatry. If we look at this word here um, in verse 15, Jesus says this to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is detestable before God. And that word detestable uh, is used a number of different times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's associated with false idols. Um, so, you know, the detestable idols that were built in the Old Testament. It's associated with unjust practices and the condemnation of the righteous. So saying that the bad is good and the good is bad. Um, it's associated with inappropriate fiscal dealings, with sexual immorality, with, with false practice more generally. And these are the things that are detestable before God. And so what we have in this verse is really an indictment of the Pharisees that they just don't get it. That they've reversed everything. They've perverted everything. They've distorted what it means to be uh, a follower of Christ and a follower of God. And they're doing it for unrighteous gain. They're doing it so that the people in this world will approve of them. Um, their love of money just really moves them to align themselves against the kingdom of God and to stray away from the law and ultimately to forget that there are no strangers for the kingdom of God. Everybody is urged to come in. Um, your Bibles may say a little bit something different here uh, as far as, you know, what this... Um, Verse 16 is translated. Um, verse 16 is tough to translate, but uh, the way I've kind of rendered to hear this last phrase, and all are urged to enter it. Uh, my Bible actually reads a little something different. It says, and everyone forces his way into it. Um, there's just, it's a, it's a very odd verb. It's not used very often. And so um, there's a lot of different ways to translate it. 
to me, this one makes the most sense. I think what Jesus is really saying is that here, the, the law and the prophets were, were until John, I have testified here. They testified to what was right and what was wrong prior to John. Then you have John as sort of this bridge individual. And since then, the good news of the kingdom has been proclaimed and all are urged to enter it. In other words, I think that what Jesus is trying to say to them is, you don't get to decide who comes in and who doesn't come in. You're not the arbiters of who shows up and who doesn't. You're not the, you're not the people who decides who our, friends, who our friends are and who our strangers are. Uh, you can't hold people out. We're urging people in. And I think back to the parable that uh, Luke told about the dinner party where, um, you know, the folks that were initially invited declined the invitation. And uh, the, the master says, listen, go out and find whoever you can to fill the table. And uh, the servants come back and they say, okay, we've got everybody. And he's like, there's still open seats. And he sends them back out to compel more people to come in. And this is the nature of the kingdom. It doesn't matter who's seated at the table, but the banquet hall is going to be full. And if those who were initially invited don't want to accept the invitation, then we're going to invite other people in. There's no one who's really barred other than those who decide that they are going to stand against the kingdom and not do, um, not act in accordance with it. And so this whole first section, what we see is Jesus defending his previous teaching about the use of unrighteous wealth to make friends. Uh, no one is barred from the kingdom except those who choose to serve money rather than God. That, I think, is the point, a point he's making here in these first three verses. And so that's where we get, um, for kingdom people, there are no strangers. In other words, we shouldn't automatically say, you can't, you obviously can't be part of us, right? Our job is to sort of use what we have to welcome everyone in because we know that, that God is throwing this invitation out widely for us. Uh, the second lesson, uh, majority opinion doesn't matter ever. Um, here the Pharisees have been sort of seeking to justify themselves before men. That's what Jesus claims in his, uh, in his indictment of them. What we find here is that the majority opinion and the whim of the powerful doesn't matter at all. Um, it doesn't matter that the Pharisees or the powerful people in Rome or the wealthy of the world are saying, this is how the world works. We're going to define it. We're going to make it happen. It just doesn't matter. Uh, the law and the prophets and the gospels define reality. That's what defines reality. And it doesn't matter how many people agree with it or disagree with it, that defines reality. Um, in picking our friends, then, we demonstrate which order we desire to follow. And as Jesus taught the disciples, no servant can serve those two masters. You're either going to love one or despise the other. There is no way to serve both God and money. And I think the idea there in this setting is that, you know, it doesn't really matter how the rest of the world operates. The kingdom operates on kingdom ideals. It is something different than we're used to. And so here, if we look just one more, add one more verse in here, what we're seeing is that the, the law is sort of the driver. It's in the driver's seat as to what is appropriate for us to do. So John becomes this bridge between the law and the prophets in the kingdom of God. And in looking at John's preaching, we can see this. Um, in Luke 3, uh, we see kind of what John is preaching, and he preaches accusations of disobedience. You know, so he calls 
people out for acting against the law and the prophets, not acting um, as they should as uh, good Jewish people um, who really understand the Old Testament scriptures. He warns against greed, uh, which is, again, a pretty common theme in Luke. And then he has this sort of uh, moment where he uh, rails against Herod Antipas's adultery. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later because I think it relates to verse 18. But those are really the three keys to John's teaching. And so what John is saying is, listen, it doesn't really matter what's happening now. We've got the Old Testament. We have the, the writings that were revealed to ancient Israel. This is still in force. Like, we should still be doing this. This, is, this defines our reality for us, not any of this other stuff. It doesn't matter who's, really, who's earthly in charge. We know that God's in charge. And so as we think through what it means then to um, whose opinion matters, we have to take the law into account. Anybody who disagrees with the law, their opinion really doesn't matter that much. So in a very real way, it doesn't matter who disagrees with the law and the prophets or the good news of the kingdom. Um, For Luke, the performance of the law and the prophets is tied up with this sort of restoration of the people and what Jesus is really bringing to the world at this point. Part of his emphasis on the poor is just this. And so as the, as the Pharisees sort of mock Jesus's teaching and say, no, you shouldn't make, you shouldn't be making friends with the unrighteous or with unrighteous wealth. Like that's kind of foolish. That's not particularly savvy. That's not how we operate. Um, you know, it's possible to love money and advance, you know, the cause of the Jews. Like this is just the way the world works now. I mean, the Roman government's kind of tough. So you got to be savvy to navigate it. And that's essentially what they're doing to Jesus here. But, you know, for Luke, that's not what this really is at all. Um, I think back to chapter four, when Jesus is speaking on the Sabbath in the synagogue, and he applies Isaiah 61 to himself. You know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those things don't happen when you're sort of trying to tie in to the, um, the system of money and the corrupt systems of power of the Roman government just so that you can continue to survive. I mean, I think what the Pharisees are saying is, um, and you can kind of see their dilemma that, hey, we've still got to be able to operate here, right? And some of what you're saying doesn't make any sense to us. Like, why would we align with the dregs of society um, when really they can't get anything done for us? And what Jesus's point is, listen, aligning with the dregs of society is not, it doesn't mean that you're going to like win some sort of earthly war or amass, you know, all this wealth or gain a new sort of power. What it means is that you understand God's in charge. And this is what he's telling you to do. And it's never a bad idea to listen to God and go where he's going. And so in Luke's gospel, really befriending the poor and embracing the outcasts of society demonstrates one's alignment with the kingdom of God. Um, which has been kind of broken into the world and established in Christ. And it's become um, by siding with the world, they've taken a position over against God and they've denied the ongoing validity of the law and distorted the message of the gospel, becoming false teachers. Um, this idea that they're again, labeled lovers of money. It was a, it was a pretty common ascription to um, false teachers back in the day. Um, if you wanted to discredit someone, you just say, well, they're not really teaching you because that's the truth. They're teaching you because they have a self-interest. They're going to gain wealth off of this. They're getting something. And so everything that appears to be altruistic that they're doing, they're really doing out of self-interest. 
And it was just one way to sort of critique that. And the Pharisees have fallen into this. And so while the majority of the poor, powerful sort of operate in the fashion that the Pharisees probably would have advocated, I think the lesson to be learned here is that their majority opinion just doesn't matter. It is God's word and the logic of the kingdom that defines our reality and determines the way that we act. The last lesson, um, kingdom people don't make friends through compromise. And basically here, uh, this is where I would, I would go to sort of verse 18. And uh, first, I don't, I don't think this is a random comment on divorce and adultery. Um, I would argue it's placed in this context to highlight uh, the relational dynamic that Jesus has been highlighting in chapter 16 up to this point. And part of what, why I think that is, you know, you have all these issues of wealth and money loving and all those kind of things. But really what's at issue is um, what sort of relationships are you trying to forge and why are you trying to forge them? And so if I use my wealth to gain status so that I can elevate myself, how is that any different from uh, what Herod Antipas did with Herodias? And that's one example of what I think lies in the background here. Fairly common Roman practice and actually relatively acceptable was to um, jump into marriages in order to solidify political power. You see this in kind of old movies all the time, right? Um, if you want to, you know, forge a, uh, an alliance between England and France, you marry two royals from England and France. And now you guys are sort of joined at the hip. And the Pharisees are doing the same thing here. They're, they're sort of looking at it and saying, well, that seems okay. Um, let's, let's just sort of forge these relationships for our own ends. But Herod Antipas uh, was a great example of this. Uh, Herodias was his brother Philip's wife. She divorces Philip and marries Herod Antipas. It's actually one of the things that John the Baptist spoke against Herod Antipas about. And so what, what I think we find here is this idea that, um, you know, our relationships um, can't really come about by unjust or unrighteous means. We're not supposed to compromise ourselves in order to gain out of our relationships. Um, so that was the, the Roman practice. Um, we've talked a little bit about the money lovers and how they were less concerned with the truth and more concerned about what was beneficial for them. And the other background for this that I think we can't really forget is that, you know, the Old Testament uses adultery as, um, as an analogy for idolatry. And so we've already seen in this sort of detestable acts um, what, what the what the what men are doing, what is exalted among men is detestable before God. Um, we've already sort of seen this sort of idolatrous context. And I think verse 18 is included here to emphasize and reinforce this. And that um, what the Pharisees are doing is tantamount to cheating on God. I think that they are so misconstruing what it means to be in relationship and have friendships with others um, that, that, Verse 18 underscores that through this very powerful sort of appeal to um, divorce and remarriage, which um, would have been a, a covenantal relationship that is now distorted and misused in order to gain power and prominence within society. Um, overall, it just seems like it's less of a comment on divorce and remarriage specifically, although it's obviously in the background. Um, 
and we should take care about extracting it from context. Um, it just seems that Jesus' statement is highlighting a particular instance of uh, compromised teaching. The Pharisees had bought into a system in which adultery was simply tolerated, um, and these sort of relationships were tolerated. Marriage had become a means of achieving status in the world as opposed to something that was demonstrating um, you know, the, the union of God and his people in covenant. And so the Pharisees, as they traded this loyalty to God for social standing in the context of the Roman Empire, um, is analogous to the trades that were made to secure political power. Final critique of the Pharisees um, in this section. And this, uh, I included this slide, just I thought it gave a nice, a decent visual of like where, whoops. Oh, that's always good. What I did there. You guys probably can't see any of that now, can you? All right, back. So, uh, <laughs> um, what you see here is sort of all of the things, all the problems that were associated with money lovers and abomination in uh, Greco-Roman literature. It wasn't just about wealth. It wasn't just about adultery. It wasn't just about you know any sort of particular sexual immorality. It was about compromise. It, it was about um, abandoning the things that you know are right in order to achieve some sort of status or some sort of benefit for yourself in society. Um, and so I'll jump to the last thing here. Um, just a summary of what these three lessons are. There are no strangers for kingdom people. The majority opinion doesn't matter ever. It's really God's law that defines um, what our reality is. And we don't, we don't compromise. Um, kingdom people don't make friends through compromise. We don't compromise our integrity um, in the kingdom for our own selfish gain. So how do I think this applies to us? Well, uh, a couple things. I think we need to avoid becoming obsessed with the well done, well done of this world. Um, St. Augustine wrote about this in his confessions. He talked about offices where um, the well done, well done um, that we receive uh, becomes something where we start to seek glory for ourselves as opposed to seeking glory for God. And so we just have to watch ourselves, that the pats on the back that we get, the benefits that we receive from um, the relationships that we have, don't become a, a, uh, a goal for us or a quest. It's not what we're after. Um, I think what we always have to be after is glorifying God with all that we are and all that we have. I think the second thing is we need to cultivate and help others cultivate the virtues of patience and charity. Um, when I think about patience, you know, there, there's a part of me that sympathizes with the Pharisees. Uh, here the Pharisees are, they're trying to do something, whatever it is that they're trying to do. Um, if I give my most generous interpretation of what the Pharisees were trying to do, they're trying to preserve some form of Judaism. Um, and while they may be benefiting from that, it just feels like they're, they're not, um, it's not like these guys are demons. They've been sucked into a system that they just weren't capable of avoiding. They didn't have the, the patience, in other words, to wait it out, right? They're trying to make this work. They're trying to force it. And in trying to force it, they end up compromising themselves. They become disloyal to God and they lose any sort of moorings 
that they would have had within the, the real true covenantal life of ancient Israel. And so what I think we need is we need to have patience. We need to recognize that there's a lot that's wrong, tons of stuff that's wrong. Um, <laughs> the world is definitely not as it should be. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have to fix it, right? Because there's no amount of none of us, either individually or together, have the time to fix the world. We don't have the time. We don't have the resources. We don't, you know, we just don't. But God does. And so it's really not up to us to fix it. It's up to us to be faithful within it. And that is the definition, I think, of patience. It's seeing all the things that are wrong with the world, standing faithfully in it and trusting that God is going to do something with it at some point. I think we also need to practice charity um, and, and help others cultivate that virtue of charity. Um, there is a sense in which um, we, we need to be able to give away what we have in order to make these friendships, in order to forge these friendships. And, um, and those, two, those two pieces, patience and charity, seem to be what the Pharisees are most lacking. They're... Um, aside from just having a, a blatant love for money and a self-interest, um, they've also sort of forgotten that God has plenty of time on his hands and God has plenty of resources on his hands. The last thing is don't compromise the integrity of the kingdom for your own selfish gain. And I phrase it like that, the integrity of the kingdom, because I think um, what I want to highlight here is the, the deep connection between what we do and how it reflects on who God is. Um, when we, uh, um, and we, you know, we refuse to, uh, let's say we like the Pharisees, they're, um, you know, they're, they're deciding that the Roman power and the Roman officials and the, the people who are giving them this status are more important than following God. What effectively they're doing is saying that God isn't really God. They're crafting an idol and, um, they're, they're saying that Rome is more powerful than God. And the way that things are set up, God can't overcome that. And I think that's a real problem. And so in the way that we act and the way that we think about the world around us, we do reflect what it means to be a kingdom person. And so it's on us not to compromise the integrity of that kingdom, but to be part of, the, of, of really showing and testifying what that kingdom is to everyone around us. So we'll discuss some of that more in second hour, but, um, you know, these three lessons of, um, of <clears throat> there are no strangers in the kingdom or, or for kingdom people, majority opinion doesn't matter ever. And kingdom people don't make friends through compromise, uh, are really where I see Luke 16, 14 through 18, um, giving us some insight into the kingdom of God and what it means to live in it. So let me pray, and uh, then we'll, we'll move on with the rest of the service. Lord, just thanks for um, your teaching in the book of Luke. We thank you, Lord, that you uh, provided us with such an interesting account of what it means to be your people. Uh, we thank you for Luke's um, keen awareness of the poor and the outcasts and the marginalized among us. And um, we ask, Lord, that we would be people who... Um, befriend those who can't give us anything in return. 
And we pray that uh, you would just guard us against self-interest, that you would guard us against the love of money, and that we would um, learn the lessons of what it means to be a kingdom people, that uh, everyone in the world might know that you are God and uh, that your way of life is so much better and so much more compelling uh, than anything that we could come up with ourselves. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.